Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going well. Um, it's going a little bit better if you're Elizabeth Prelogger, who appears to be just basically hours as we record here on Thursday afternoon away from being confirmed uh, as the U.S. Solicitor General. She was acting Solicitor General, but now she has that she gets rid of that kind of cumbersome uh, title of acting and she gets the full thing. I think that that has a little bit more panache, don't you think? I, I sure do. And, you know, if she's confirmed, she's going to be the second Senate confirmed female solicitor general in the U.S. history after Justice Elena Kagan, who, by the way, she actually clerked for along with Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And there was another judge, right? D.C. Circuit Judge, judge Garland. Merrick Garland. That's right. Now known as Attorney General Merrick Garland, who she will now be working under once again as the U.S. Solicitor General. That's like the number four position in the DOJ. Um, and basically, the role is for her to essentially craft the federal government's legal position before the Supreme Court. And it is a big job. Yeah, so now... With this confirmation, like you said, she, she gets rid of the acting. What is she facing when she goes back to the office? Well, as we've talked about on this podcast, I mean, it's she's coming back to the office in the midst of a, of a historic Supreme Court term with so many big cases on the docket. We have abortion, we have gun rights, we have religious liberty, and so many things in between. Um, actually, there's a, kind of a question mark as to whether or not she's going to be um, arguing on Monday in the big abortion cases that we've been covering on this podcast. We haven't really quite given our listeners the, the latest updates, but suffice it to say that there are two big abortion cases coming on Monday, one of which involves the federal government as a party, that we could potentially see Elizabeth Prelogger argue for the government. Now, we won't know until the court releases its, you know, its hearing list. It usually does that on the Friday before an argument session. But you got to imagine that she hasn't just been, you know, sitting at home watching Netflix while her <laughs> confirmation <laughs> has been pending. She's probably been studying these cases um, pretty thoroughly. And I wouldn't be surprised to see her kind of really um, kind of take charge when she when she comes into the office. But I suppose we'll see. Yes, definitely. And uh, I think that's a good segue, Jimmy. We want to actually chat about those abortion cases um, and kind of give the latest update and, and really dig into them. Um, so, yeah, first up, what's the big update on these? Right. So, OK, so let's back up to when we last recorded on last week on Thursday. Well, the, the next day on Friday, uh, the Supreme Court decided that it was going to expedite two challenges to Texas's SB8. This is the law that bans most abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. Now, the court set those two cases, one of which was brought by the federal government challenging the law, another was brought by abortion providers challenging the law for oral arguments on Monday. That was just 10 days after that Friday order. So this is like a super fast-track case schedule for the court to decide these cases. Now, that's pretty unusual, right? Yeah, that, I mean, that is, it's not unheard of. Like, I think that the last case that was heard on this expedited of a basis was actually Bush versus Gore all the way, you know, 20 years ago in the year 2000, which obviously um, involved litigation over the, the, the presidential election. And I mean, 
I guess I would say that that case actually made this 10-day schedule for the parties in this abortion case look pretty generous. Um, just to kind of remind people, the court granted cert to the Bush campaign's petition on December 9th of that year, held oral arguments on December 11th, and decided the case on December 12th. So that's like lightning fast, right? But this yeah. one's and, still and, fast. And th- that was like, you know, obviously a very like particular fact issue of like right. trying to decide who is president. Um, but with these abortion cases, what do you think the reason for the rush is? I mean, it's a fair question, right? So you just mentioned there was obviously recounts going on. The nation was in limbo in the 2000 presidential election um, with the results basically being litigated in Florida. And so there was a real imperative to decide this as soon as possible. Now, the abortion providers and the federal government in this case say that those circumstances are still present, that, you know, since this Texas law went into effect on September 1st, um, it basically has nullified most legal abortions in the country's second most populous state, where uh, you know uh, women now in Texas who are seeking to end abortions after six weeks of pregnancy, mind you, a period which before which many women actually know they're 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 pregnant, they have to travel basically across state lines into neighboring jurisdictions that don't have a similarly restrictive law. And according to those providers, they have been causing backlogs um, uh, with, and they have overwhelmed um, providers in those neighboring states. Now, experts I've spoken with aren't convinced that these facts about abortion access on the ground in Texas is the sole motivating factor behind the, the court acting so quickly in these cases. They believe that it actually has more to do with the way this law was written, Texas's SB8, which we'll get into in a bit, and potentially the effects that it has on other states introducing potential copycat legislation. All right, let's get into this in, in, in a moment. But before that, can you explain how this intersects with the big Dobbs case, which we were already watching, for, and that's scheduled still in December? Right. So these two abortion cases that are set to be heard on Monday don't actually involve a challenge to the Supreme Court's abortion precedents in Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which protect a woman's constitutional right to obtain an abortion before a fetus is viable. Those holdings are being challenged actually in December in another case. That's the case involving Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban that you just referred to, uh, Dobbs v. Mississippi. Instead, these cases actually involve procedural issues surrounding how SB8 was structured. So just to kind of give some background here, I think we've talked about it a little bit on the podcast, but just as a refresher, this six-week abortion ban is actually not enforced by state regulators or state officials. So the text of the law actually outsources the enforcement of the ban to private parties, to citizens who are empowered under the law to bring legal actions against anyone who has aided or abetted an abortion after six weeks, except in rare cases of medical emergencies for the mother. Um, But cases of rape and incest do not meet those exceptions. Now, successful actions brought by citizens against someone who has obtained one of these abortions can result in a minimum of $10,000 in damages against the offending party. So this is a novel third-party enforcement structure. Some critics call it vigilantism. And what it has done is it's it's made it really difficult for abortion providers to actually challenge the law, who ordinarily would have to sue individual state officials 
tasked with enforcing it. That's how litigation, constitutional litigation, challenging uh, supposedly unconstitutional law works. And that's what the abortion providers did here. And in fact, the architects of the law have reportedly structured it this way for that exact same purpose. There's a really illustrative article in the New York Times. It's called Behind the Texas Abortion Law, a Persevering Conservative Lawyer. And it's all about um, this conservative lawyer named Jonathan Mitchell, who clerked for Scalia and served as a Texas Solicitor General, who came up with this third-party enforcement structure as a way to shield these abortion laws from constitutional challenges. That's something that I'm just going to drop there for the listeners. If they want to read more about it, they can they can do so there. But basically, it's it's proven a bit successful, right? Because the Supreme Court on September 1st, by a five to four majority in an unsigned decision, said that this law and this third-party enforcement structure poses these novel antecedent procedural questions that it wasn't going to get involved in. And so the law actually went into effect, and it the, the structure of the law had the intended effect of effectively shielding it from judicial review. That's right. I feel like I should note here, um, the, the American Bar Association actually came out yesterday in an amicus supporting the federal government's position and really coming out strongly against the structure and kind of like, you know, the roundabout way it goes around, um, you know, the, the law and, you know... It, very strong words. This court has never countenanced such lawlessness. Um, so, you know, it, it's, I think it's a really interesting debate that will be happening at the Supreme Court on Monday. Um, but like you just mentioned, the court said that it wasn't planning to weigh in on like complex and novel procedural questions. What happened? How did we get here? I think it's a fair question. So I think it's worth examining what exactly the court is getting ready to hear in these two cases. So in the petition from abortion providers, in their new petition, they've kind of tweaked their following question to really take aim at the way this law was written. And they asked the court to decide, quote, whether a state can insulate from federal court review a law that prohibits the exercise of a constitutional right by delegating to the general public the authority to enforce that prohibition through civil actions. Now, I should just mention that the court's going to answer a slightly different question in the case being brought by the federal government, having to do with whether the U.S. can actually have standing to bring this lawsuit in federal court. But both basically generally go to the way that this law was written. What recourse do abortion providers, does the federal government have to basically challenge a law that is being brought by these third parties. I mean, can the federal government get into federal court and, and assert what they are asserting, which is an argument that the Texas has basically flouted the supremacy clause of the U.S. Constitution and has found a way to circumvent um, the uh, basically the binding precedence of the Supreme Court by the way it's written? Definitely going to be interesting to see how those questions play out on Monday. Jimmy, you've done a great job here kind of breaking it all down and, and like, showcasing how all the puzzle pieces fit but what's the bottom line here in terms of how the judges might rule like kind of what what's likely to happen on either side right they might sound like very complicated procedural questions about this novel third party structure and whether the federal government has standing but i, I think it's fair to say that at stake here 
is whether the Texas law can stand, whether the Supreme, I mean, both the federal government and the abortion providers, make no mistake, are asking the Supreme Court justices to block this law, which has now been in effect for nearly two months and causing what they say to be constitutional havoc on the abortion right in Texas. So, you know, I, I would say that the, these procedural questions that are at the heart of the case will probably make up, you know, the bulk of the opinions that we see um, handed down. But at bottom, this case is about whether this Texas law, SB 8, banning most abortions after six weeks, can continue to stand. So earlier in our discussion, we compared this to Bishvigor, which was obviously like lightning fast in terms of, an, you know, the arguments and then the opinion the very next day. Um, when do you get a sense of when we'll see a ruling here? I think it's fair to say that this one, unlike, you know, many of the big abortion or other controversial social issue cases that we see at the Supreme Court, it's probably not going to come down in June, right? So, I, I mean, I think we'll see the court act pretty quickly. If they want to rule for the for the government and for the abortion providers, I think they'll want to probably nip in the bud any potential copycat legislation you know, passed by other state houses as a, as a workaround to, to judicial review for laws that may be subject otherwise to constitutional challenges. I mean, after all, there was no reason for them to set such a te- deadline if they weren't going to decide the case quickly. But like, you know, how quickly is quickly? Is it a day? Is it a week? Is it a month? You know, your guess is as good as not mine, Natalie. Well, that is a guess I will not be making on air, but we will see <laughs> when it comes <laughs> Very down. Very judicious, yeah. So that just about does it for us today. Um, Next week, as we've discussed, is going to be a big week in arguments. On top of these abortion cases, the court is also going to be touching on gun rights. So please tune in next week to hear us break it all down. Until then, thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Natalie. Um, We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, contributing reporter, James Arkin, and music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search law360 in the term. Thanks for listening.